The power of 3D graphics hardware and rendering technology is improving at an astonishing pace. To achieve high graphical fidelity, assets that compose 3D worlds must feature an ever-increasing level of detail. Andrew Price is the founder of Polygon, which is an asset production studio and store. Andrew also runs the highly popular Blender Guru YouTube channel where he teaches viewers how to use Blender. Andrew joins the show to talk about how different virtual assets are made, building his company, the impact of AI on graphics production, whether graphics have achieved photorealism, and much more. Joe Nash is a developer, educator, and award-winning community builder who has worked at companies including GitHub, Twilio, Unity, and PayPal. Joe got his start in software development by creating mods and running servers for Gary's Mod, and game development remains his favorite way to experience and explore new technologies and concepts. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. I'm your host for today's episode, Joe Nash, and today I'm joined by Andrew Price. You may know Andrew from his popular YouTube channel, Blender Guru, but Andrew is also the CEO of Polygon, an asset and texture library for CG artists. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So I want to dive in straight away. You know, we mentioned Blender Guru, and that's how I personally know you as we're chatting in the intro. I was one of many people I know who did the donut tutorial during lockdown. So I want to, first of all, start by asking you, how did you get started with Blender? What was your journey into into 3D and modeling and CG, etc.? Yeah, so it was back in, I was in high school. So this was 2003, and I just love video games. So I was playing Need for Speed. And specifically the car that's on the turntable and you're like in the car selection mode. I was like looking at it and I'm like, how is that made? And how can I make one? Right. Because I thought like it has to be possible like to make something like, you know. And so I Googled, this is before Google, msn.com and searched for free 3D software. I think the first one I tried was a software called Animator with an eight in the name. It was very, very janky and horrible. And then I found another, I saw a picture. And it was a red sports car. It was 3D. And it was hosted on a website called Blender.org. And so that was how I discovered Blender. And I thought at the time, like, if somebody else, because obviously this is free software, and so there's no schooling system, there's no university course in it, it's free. If somebody else could teach themselves to use the software enough to make that car, then I should also be able to do the same thing. And so, yeah, it was a just a process of looking on forums for articles or like mini tutorials people had written because it was before video had really taken off, just trying to learn the software and piece together everything. And I would say like, it took me four years actually (laughs) before I made that car. Because like I, I later learned a car is a very complex object that even takes professionals like upwards of two to four weeks just to finish it. Yeah, it's very, very challenging. That was my story. There's lots of things there that I want to follow up on, but like the fact that you stuck with the original vision of doing the car over that whole thing as well and didn't like go off chasing other rabbits is is particularly notable. That's that's awesome. <laughs> I guess to follow up on that, so you know, you got into it at high school and you spent that process learning it. When did you decide to, you know, start making Blender content? When did like Blender Guru get like be born? Yeah, it was interesting. So like originally I just wanted to be a freelancer. Or actually, no, I didn't want to be a freelancer. I wanted to work at a studio but no studio would hire me. So I thought, well, I could, next rung down from that, I could be a freelancer because nobody has to say yes, except you have to just win a client and you're in. But then also I couldn't get any client work. And I myself was consuming a lot of tutorials. And so I thought as a way to get your name out there, you could make tutorials and then they would find your name and then they would you know, give you a job. Now that I think about it, not the greatest strategy because like the people watching tutorials are 3D artists, not clients who don't know 3D. So anyways, actually I did get one job from it. So I was I started with a video on modeling a car tire. That was my first video. Then I did a grass tutorial. That was my second one. That was very popular. I was posting it up on Vimeo because YouTube at the time had a 10 minute upload limit. So I couldn't go over it. <laughs> so I was posting it all on Vimeo and sharing it on forums and things like that. And I made one on a smoke simulator how to use the Blender Smoke Simulator, which was new at the time. And uh, that got me my first and only, I will say, freelance gig, doing smoke for a Bridgestone tire commercial. Wow, that's a, that's a, that's a high profile one. 
It wasn't that bad. Like, yeah, I mean, it was pretty sure it was like local to Australia. It wasn't like a big thing, but it was okay. But I, I hate it. I realized in the process that like, this is just not for me. Like I enjoy doing, the reason I like 3D is because you're creating something that you want to create and doing something that somebody else tells you suddenly it's less appealing. But my dad, for a Christmas gift, he gave me this course, like it was a giant box of DVDs from like one of these like internet marketing personalities, these gurus way back in the day, where it was basically the novel concept of selling goods online. That had not really been explained. It was like really early in the uh, like creator economy kind of thing. And so it was just basically a course on like, you can make something and then you can sell it on the internet. I went to this course, it was like a live thing and there was a DVD thing. And and I was like, oh, wow. So like you could you could write an ebook, it's a PDF, it's literally easy to make. And then you could sell it to an audience that you build by making free stuff. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then coincidentally at around the same time, I went to my first ever Blender conference. So I flew from Australia to Amsterdam, which is where the Blender headquarters is. At that conference, Ton Rusendahl, the founder of Blender, went up on stage. And one of the things he mentioned in his keynote was that education was a big desire. Like a lot of companies are asking them for how can we learn Blender and they just don't have any education. So I was like, huh, well, maybe that could be my thing. I could just continue making tutorials and somehow make some money out of that. And so that was how I ended up doing tutorials forever. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, that, that totally makes sense. And you must have, I mean, we could probably spend a whole other episode just talking about like how the life of like a YouTube creator who's doing that has changed over the course of like the e-commerce and internet cycles. But I guess to not spend too long on it, like, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently with all, you know, various YouTubers retiring, all this kind of stuff. Has there, is it still, is Blender Guru still like part of your life that is, you know, giving you value and is like, you know, you think the Blender education part is still working for you, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely changing. Like I'm realizing that the YouTube audience doesn't really like the style of like, let's sit down and make this from like start to finish. It doesn't really work. <laughs> when I say work, I mean, it doesn't do anywhere near the success of what, what you call edutainment. Right. If you're familiar with like Veritasium or Mark Rober, that kind of style of which just, it's really, it's like, it's ed entertainment, but you're learning something. So I experimented with this recently. I made a tutorial, I made a video, not a tutorial, on CGI versus practical effects. So I did uh, this, you know, in the, in the Shining, that scene where the elevator doors open and then all the blood explodes out into the thing. And so I talked about like, that was a practical effect. Let's see if I could do it in Blender. I just like, months of work, but mashed up really quickly into this condensed format. And then I talked about the value of practical versus CGI and why CGI is so chosen, even though it looks worse than practical. And yeah, the YouTube algorithm loves it. You know, like it's probably one of my most popular videos, 4 million views or something. Whereas like a sit down and like, let's, ex let's do this. Like I made one on like a puddle, like, like let's make this puddle. And it's for like people that are really into Blender and they want to know how to make a puddle, which is, I thought very versatile. Like you could practical, you can use it for a lot of cases, but you know, it just doesn't, doesn't pay, unfortunately. It's only like at 300,000 views or something like a year or so later. So I'm sort of realizing that like maybe that style of video is kind of dying out, like the long format. And people will say like, no, I love, like if you ask the audience, you ask on Twitter, like, do you want more of this? They're like, yes, I want the long form. And it's like, yeah, but you're not clicking it. You're not watching. <laughs> unfortunately, you say you like it, but Unfortunately, nobody is actually consuming it in the numbers required. So I'm sort of realizing maybe that style format is really suited to paid courses because people pay for courses. They actually want to pay. So a lot of people, they, they start learning Blender from the donut tutorial, but there's actually, I think a, a large portion of people that want to buy something because they feel you get this structured curriculum because that's what's expected from that medium. Whereas YouTube, they don't even think to look there. So I'm sort of realizing that format's better for a paid course. And YouTube is more for your lead generation, which some people will be sad to hear that that's the, the devolution of education, but that's kind of where it's at. <laughs> where the algorithm's putting you. But yeah, no, it totally makes sense. I can also kind of see how, you know, that reaction from your audience who said that they're wanting it, but they're not clicking it. Like, I am that guy. I see the new video. I'm like, I will find time for that in the future. Add it to my bookmarks bookmarks are right only never go back to it ever again but i wanted it i just haven't yeah time for it right that's probably what exactly 
that's the, the other sad thing is that like technical tutorials they have a shelf life because even a year later i mean the shortest actually the shortest shelf life of video i ever had was about two weeks i released a tutorial and then blender released an update two weeks later that made that tutorial redundant because they changed the interface in some way and it just happens constantly so like it has to really work immediately because even a year later people are just like it's dead content so sadly even when you're doing videos on a course platform that makes it easier to you know swap videos out than youtube does like updating a video exactly video is notoriously difficult right like yes exactly it's once it's done it's done yeah fascinating okay well so i mean obviously we mentioned in the intro that you're also ceo of a company of polygon can you introduce polygon and for folks who haven't heard of it yeah so polygon is a library of textures models and hdris that people use in games, VFX, and primarily architectural visualization. That's kind of a big demographic. So for example, if you're an artist and you want to make an office, right? You need carpet textures, you might need wood, you need some models of desks and chairs, and that's what a library like ours would provide. So you'd come to our library, download the desk, download the chair, and put that in your scene. And that is very common for production to use paid models like this because the time it takes to model a chair, right? Get all the little nuts and the bolts and all that kind of thing. It could take you a week, right? And so for one artist to sit there for a week, you know, the boss might have spent two grand or a grand or something just building one single chair. So it just doesn't doesn't scale. And that chair can be reused, right? So you make it once and it could be reused in multiple projects, but maybe that person or that company only needed it for that one shot. So it doesn't make sense. So instead artists it's actually kind of like a, it's a job on two-sided marketplaces. So Turbo Squid is the biggest one where basically individual artists can make something and upload it, put a price tag on it of $10 or something. And then a company can buy it for $10 and instead of spending $1,000 for one of their own internal team to make a chair that's just generic and basic, they just buy it and it saves them you know, $990 in that case. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, obviously we have over in the software world, we have that exact parallel with like, you know, you start a new program, you import all the libraries you want, your package manager goes and grabs them and you're off to the races. You don't have to rebuild everything from scratch. So that I think everyone listening will, will totally understand that concept. One thing I particularly liked on that notion is two, two-sided marketplace. I was watching one of your videos recently, the Family Guy house reconstruction one. The process oh, yeah. of that sofa was very cool. And the fact that it ended up with like, oh, we've just thrown this on Polygon. Uh, can you briefly talk about like the challenge you had with making that asset and like why it was worth putting online yeah yeah so the sofas soft things organic flowy things are very challenging this is one of the, a, a very complex asset to create because most stuff is hard hard surface if you're making a desk it's almost like the computer's designed for it right because you start with a box you shrink it and then you extrude it across and like look you've got a perfectly flat desk that are finished right but something like a couch that's that's got volume to the cushions and then as it you know expands in this shape you'll get like wrinkles along the edges but it's also got a a form of itself that has to retain and it's very very difficult so there are ways you can do it so you could just be a very good sculptor or modeler and sculpt in where the folds need to go but that's a very niche skill to have there's actually not many artists that can do it very well because you have to understand if you add volume in this place it's going to have pulled the fabric from this place and it's going to create wrinkles and creases that look like this it's going in this direction and it's really difficult so it's almost like a litmus test we can use for uh sculptors when we're looking for them like can you make a sofa and it's like most people can't it's really really hard so yeah, I mean, I tried it. I mean, Blender's even got some like fabric tools, which does like a mini simulation. So if you pull it, it kind of creates creases where else it goes, but it doesn't understand the rest of the form. It's very local to a thing. So I talked about how I tried it. It didn't really work, but I really, I knew it was like a, a hero asset for the scene. It's the purple couch for, you know, the Griffin family. So I thought, let's try a different method, photogrammetry, which is another method for modeling something. And instead you have the real object from real life. And then you take a series of photos around it using a camera in kind of a turntable motion. And it's a lot that's simplifying it more than it should, but it's, it's very complicated to get just the right amount of photos. And then you use software uh, like Reality Capture or Agisoft's uh, Metashape. And it aligns those photos together. It like spots, like there's a little 
spot here on the couch and then I can see that same spot in another angle. So it must be the same part of the mesh and it forms and generates uh, a mesh from it. So I did that. Yeah, just to use that to duplicate, create the rest of the cushions and then extract some of the detail from it into a brush, which I could then sculpt to create different variations. Very complicated process and not at all what you would actually do in production, I think. Just completely infeasible. You would never use it, but I did it because it makes sense for a YouTube video. You want to learn something new, you kind of have to go through those ropes. Yeah. yeah. Well, as you said, it's also, you know, you say you probably wouldn't do it in production, but like, I guess it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be the couch, but like there would be something else that's the hero object in the scene in that case. I probably would get Correct. that level of attention, right? So yeah. Definitely. Yes, yes. So throughout the, you know, explanation of that and also your company, you mentioned a couple of, I guess, like Blender technical terms, CG technical terms that I'd love to dive in with you a little bit. So sure, sure, sure. All, texture mapping. What is texture mapping and how does that work in, in Blender? Yeah, so texture mapping, it's an oddly challenging one. It's applying a 2D texture, like an image. If you just like Googled seamless wood texture or something, you get like wood, right? And then you have to apply that to a three-dimensional shape. And so at first it sounds easy. It's like just you know, slap it on there, but it's three-dimensional. So it wraps around. And if you just left it to the computer, you would have like stretching where it tries to stretch it around. So the most common way to map an object is to manually put in seams into your 3D object. So you, it, and the easiest way to think of it is like, if your object was made of paper, where would you cut with the scissors in order to lay it out flat onto a table, right? So if you had a car that was made of paper and it was like sitting there on your desk, where would you put those little cuts so that you could lay the paper out flat? And so those cuts are called seams. And once you've put all the, the seams in, you can then UV unwrap it. So that's the first and most common way of texturing, UV unwrapping. And it just forms, yeah. Your 3D mesh is now basically put onto the 2D plane and then you just line it up with the image wherever you want the texture to go, it'll go. So that's the first method. There's also procedural textures, which is where you leave it up to the computer to create the actual texture itself. So it's not an image texture. It's not actually 2D. It's It's a three-dimensional texture. And in that way, it doesn't actually require any UV unwrapping or any complexity because the software is very good at just, it's a three-dimensional object. So it's just going to apply this procedural texture kind of all over. I mean, it's kind of the way I think of it anyway. It's almost like the, the texture exists almost in a 3D volume and then the object is inside it and it just kind of like wherever it hits it just, anyway, that's procedural texturing. And yeah, I, I would say like the most common way to create or put textures onto a mesh it changed in the last 10 odd years. It used to be you would do that process of UV unwrapping and then you would bring that into Photoshop and then you would like use Photoshop's painting brushes to paint onto this 2D looking mesh. You would then save the texture and open it up in your 3D software and then see how it looks. And you go, it doesn't look very good. Go back to Photoshop and tweak it over here, save it, go back to your software, open it, doesn't look very good. Go back and you just repeat that process until a substance painter came onto the scene. So it was a company called uh, Algorithmic. They're now bought out by Adobe, but substance painter essentially just put those like side by side in the same software application. So now you're actually not painting onto this 2D UV unwrapped, very complicated thing. You're just literally painting onto a mesh. You've got this window with just your object there and you can take a brush and you can paint colors directly onto the mesh and it just automatically puts that onto the, the correct 2D texture. So that has become industry standard. I don't think there is a game studio or a VFX studio that is not using Substance Painter in some way, but really just like completely changed texture painting. Cool. And there's not an equivalent feature in Blender. So Blender, you'd still do it the old way or use Substance Painter and bring it into... It does. Blender does have that. So it's got texture painting tools and it's had it for I mean, probably since I started using it, maybe 15 years. The problem is, is that, and what Substance Painter does differently is that it's not just color, it's also adding detail to the other texture channels. So that's another component. So texture channels. So I've just been talking about like color texture so far, right? Like if you talk about wood, like it's just, you know, orange and black and whatever, right? That's the wood. But if you look at real real wood in real life, if you bring your eye up close to it, you'll see that it's a lot more complex than that. It's got little bumps in it, right? It's also got smudges, right? Some parts look more reflective than, than others. So the software separates that 
detail into what you call like another texture channel. So the, the, the color information is just put in base color. That's the, the name of that texture. The roughness just goes in the roughness texture channel. And that's like the smudginess, the glossiness, the reflection information. And then the bump information is put into your normals, which is a technical term for similar thing. But anyway, so that is extra information which if you use the old Photoshop method, it was even more complicated. You had to try to remember where the previous, like the color had like a dark line here. So maybe there's like less of a smudge here and you had to paint it again. Very, very complicated. But now Substance Painter, you can paint, like you could paint rust, right? Or like a rust smudge and it would paint into the red channel, the, the color channel to get like the rust smudgy look whilst also painting roughness into the roughness channel at the same time. Blender can't do that. It'll only let you paint into the base color and then paint separately into a roughness color, but you can't do them all at the same time. But yeah, Substance Painter is great for that. Amazing. Okay. And Polygon, you are making and selling assets, including textures. What is the process for creating new textures? Like, you know, how do you decide, hey, that's a interesting looking piece of wood on that piece of furniture there. I need to bring that into the marketplace. Like, how does that happen? There's not an easy answer to it. It's every object is different. For example, wood is very, very detailed. So it's better suited to capturing with a camera. And we typically do that with um, not just like taking a single photo of wood and calling it a day, because it also doesn't capture that detail that I mentioned, the roughness or the bump information, very important. It doesn't capture any of that. So instead, you use like a more complicated process of photogrammetry. Anyway, there's lots of different ways to do it. But it's complicated, it's time consuming, but it creates very good detail, very good true to life replication of that wood. But you might also find it's very hard to find the wood you need. So acquiring the asset the, in real life, like contacting a wood supplier and saying, can we have your assets so that we can scan them? And then they find out like, oh, they're charging like, you know, $1,000 a square foot for this type of wood or something. And I'm like, ah, well, we can't afford to just buy it. And also, we don't need it. Can we give it back to you at the end? No. It's like, okay. So you have to kind of come up with some sort of deal. And then sometimes it's too complicated. And then you go, screw it. Let's do a different method. We don't have to acquire it. We instead do it procedurally using another piece of software called Substance Designer. So the, the other one is Substance Painter, painting onto the mesh. Substance Designer uses procedural texture creation. So you don't have to have any photo or anything from the real world to start. You instead just start with like, like noise, like computer graphic created noise. And then you go, okay, let's increase the contrast of that. Let's add another texture on top of it. Now we've got like a Veroni crack kind of look. And you try to replicate real life through a time consuming, like procedural workflow. The downside of that is that it's often looks procedural. It doesn't look as realistic as real life, but it's great for things that you can't capture. So one example, rammed earth. It's like a type of concrete, but it's, it's like natural concrete. You see it in like high-end homes or museums, maybe. Architectural people, they really want that texture. And for a while, we were trying to find it, trying like find somewhere in real life, a wall or a museum or some place where we could, and we just couldn't do it, but it's so complex. We're like, it just doesn't make sense to make procedurally. We have to be able to find it in real life. And then we just couldn't. And we just gave up. And we were like, well, it would be better to have something, even if it's not exactly photorealistic, than have nothing at all. And so one of our artists was very, very good at substance designer and was able to create an honestly pretty good close replication of the what Rammed Earth looks like just using substance designer. And we made like 30 or 50 versions of it. Because that's the other thing that's good about the substance procedural. It's very easy to multiply that into multiple types of assets. You can just quickly change the colors or the, you know, how many chips or little chunks of stone that appear in it. You can just drag a slider, more chips, less slip chips. So you could make thousands of variations very, very quickly. Whereas if you scan it just from a subject, you're often kind of locked to the detail that's there. So there's pros and there's cons. And we're constantly kind of like flip-flopping and changing our workflow around how we'll approach something. And sometimes it's it's really just like try it and then fail and then go like, we thought we could create wood. We can't. We have to find it. And so that's now the goal. Something like that. Okay, that's left me with two questions. Number one, what's like the weirdest item you have acquired to put through photogrammetry? Uh, number two, okay. 
is there a texture that like has just completely eluded you and you can't do it in either method okay the second one yeah wood wood is honestly really really challenging it's so hard because i mean it should be possible but like wood planks for one there's not really a wood company they're all kind of like contractors that just like work for a home supplier and then they get wood from a source and you want to be able to work with them but they're so busy they don't really care that you're gonna so actually what worked which we're gonna do for wood but we found a marble supplier in the united states best cheer stone and we said we'll pay you i think we said like a hundred bucks a slab or something like that if you just let us come to your factory our scanners will go there we'll scan of each of slabs we'll pay a hundred bucks a slab and then even more so we'll give you the photos because that's something that they struggle with is they know they need these like correct photos for their pamphlets and stuff but their own like they take it with their iphone and it's got the wrong lighting it's all blurry so we're like we'll give you the best photos you've ever seen and we'll pay you for the for the process and they said yes so we need to find one of those for wood but it's just kind of eluded us up until now and then as for the weirdest thing that we've scanned i mean we try to keep it fairly generic because like we actually shoot down weird ideas from the because <laughs> they'll be like there's this you know, weird type of fabric that is like only used by this like French designer and this thing. And it's just weird and obscure. And I'm like, yeah, but who's going to use that? You know, it's got like two uses and it's one of them is the the runway, like the fashion run, you know, like who's actually going to use something that looks like that? So let's not do it. Let's find something that's a little more common. If you were listening to this and you have a warehouse for the wood that needs photographing, you know, no, please contact us. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The last one for this, like, little bit of question time. One of the, I think, like, weirdest things that, like, someone who's not in the 3D space encounters when coming to somewhere like Polygon is these, like, enigmatic spheres of, like, different materials and lighting and that kind of thing. So, what, uh-huh. can you tell us what is a HDRI and, like, what is it used for? Okay. Yeah. So, it's one of the, I guess you call like the three categories of assets so the first is textures we talked about models you obviously know and hdris so hdris typically when the way we refer to them is a 360 degree capture of a space okay so typically it's like an outdoor like you've got the horizon you've got the sun you've got the sky and then you've got like a field or something below it that's kind of a common hdri and it's called an HDRI because it's not just like a single photograph that you would, you know, expect to see that's you know, eight bits and it's a JPEG or something like that. It's saved as an EXR and it's saved with multiple ranges of exposure. So when you photograph it, you're not just doing a single capture, but you're photographing it at different stops, different exposure stops. So one where the like everything is dark, but you can just see the little circle for the sun, right? Really low exposure. And then again, where everything is like blown out, where it's the opposite, and you can only just start to see like some of the shadows in the grass or something like that. And then you do that across the whole scene. So you take, I don't know, maybe like 10, 15 photographs or something. The camera can actually just do it automatically. And then you use software to compile them all together to capture that range. So it looks like a single image, but you could drag a slider to go zero exposure. So you can hardly see anything and just drag it up like that. Now, why is that useful for 3D artists? That information, when you put it into Blender or Max or any other uh, package, it can read the exposure ranges and create an exact, basically exact lighting and reflection information from the scene. So if you then take in a object of a chair that you've modeled or something like that, and you use that HDRI that was captured on a soccer field or something like that, it will look exactly like the lighting from the real life, real plane. So in VFX, they love this because typically they've got a practical scene with actors walking around and things like that, but then they need to have a robot that stands right there that's CG. And if you didn't have this information, you would have to manually try to like look at the set that was there and go, I think there was a light that was like about here. So you would add a light in Blender, right, for that point, and then another one over here. And then you go, okay, well now the lighting's okay, but it's not getting the reflection of the ground. So you maybe add a ground and then try to put a texture on it that kind of matches what was there, very complicated. And so instead you now just have somebody who stands there where the robot's gonna be with a reflective chrome ball. They sometimes call him the ball guy on set. 
And between takes, they go, ball guy. And he just goes out and stands there. And they go, and then that's it. And now they've got the exact light for where that robot needs to stand. So that's an HDRI. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. I've seen that ball, you know, on my behind the scenes version stuff. Yeah. That, yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Amazing. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I guess moving on to talking about Polygon more generally, you know, we've spoken about all these different types of assets you have. And obviously one of the most, I guess, basic type of asset you have is just 3D models of things, right? Yeah. How many are kicking about in there right now? How many have you made for Polygon? Yeah, I mean, we recently like unpublished a bunch because they no longer matched our standards because we've been around for yeah about eight years. So we got rid of some old stuff. But we've got about, I think, like eight, 900 models and then about 3,000 textures. And then I think, I don't know, 200 HDRIs. Yeah. And so, you know, that's you ran through the process of creating models like earlier. And so that's a, a lot of work that's been put into those. Mm -hmm. How do you handle that labor, that intensive labor? Like, how's the team structured around building those? What's the process of putting those together? Yeah, so it's a remote team. There's about 30 of us and based all over the world. Then we got about five or six in the United States, bits and pieces across Europe and everywhere else. And yeah, just basically like contractors to, you know, we'll pay you this much to create this type of asset. And then it just gets created. The hard part is getting it consistent, like getting, if it's something that is like made from, we call it like hand model asset. So rather than using photogrammetry to create a realistic model of, let's say, a muffin, right? It's just photo scanned. If somebody has to model that muffin from a shape, right, and then put some icing and texture it and all that kind of thing, well, it could be done any number of ways. And one of them could be realistic. One of them could have issues with the mesh. One of them could be too stylized. And so you have to art direct it. You have to kind of curate it. Somebody has to oversee it and go, you're missing this detail. This needs to be fixed. It's actually one of the costs of like hand making something, same as procedurally making that texture using Substance Designer. You just have to assume that there is always going to be this revision process to get it to the correct level. Whereas photogrammetry, one of the appeals of it is that what's real is real, right? You've only captured what's really there, so you can't really critique it. <laughs> Besides to go like, it's just technically it's not correct or there's some issue. But besides that, well, the detail is correct because it's real life. Anyway, yeah, I don't know if that answers this question. Yeah. You mentioned there that Polygons were going now for, was it eight years? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. What kind of challenges have you run along the way? Is there a particular, is there a particularly big challenge that you've had to overcome in creating Polygon? Yeah, I think one thing we decided to do with models was to not just give people, so typically a lot of like Turbo Squid and 3D Sky and all these different two-sided marketplaces, they'll give it to you in whatever format the artist who made it wanted to give it to you. <laughs> so sometimes you get a blend file, sometimes you get a max file, sometimes you get a Maya file or an Unreal file or something like that. So you typically find an object that you like and you go, ooh, that couch is going to be perfect for my scene. Ah, it's a max file. Ah, all right. And that means as the artist, you have to manually download it import that max file, convert it into a file format that Blender can read. Now it's just a gray model. It doesn't have any textures on it because the shading, the material is something that it always, always fails at. So then you have to manually drag in the textures that they've provided for you and hope that it kind of works. So what we did instead was we said, let's do that hard work for you. Let's give you the Blender, the Maya, the Max, the Cinema 4D file. And then then the artist comes to Polygon and they go, I'm using Cinema 4D, download. And then they just get it. With that though, it's very challenging <laughs> because every software is different. They all do things differently. And also, by the way, it's not just software, but it's renderers. So within Cinema 4D, there's about five different popular renderers. There's Arnold, there's Octane, there's Redshift, there's Corona, et cetera. And so you have to also make it available for those which all have their own challenges. So that was the biggest challenge. We've recently, I guess in the last year or so, worked with somebody from the game industry who was very good at automation and understanding what's required to make that process really work. So we're now starting to see the scale of the team, whereas before it was a little bit, things were just way too costly to create because the team was a lot greener. But now that we've got that management, it's going along smoothly, which is great. Very cool. And I guess the flip side of that question is, you know, 
is there anything coming up in the future in terms of you know, new rendering technology or things that might unlock new types of assets for Polygon that you're looking forward to? Hmm. For rendering, it's an interesting one. Yeah. So, I mean, the biggest one is, I mean, AI definitely is this new thing that nobody really knows what is going to be the use cases for it yet, but there are some pretty novel uses for it. So one is, I'm sure you've probably covered it on your show at some point already, but 3D Gaussian splatting, 3D GS. Oh, I don't think no. we <laughs> No, what is that? Okay. So that, if you're familiar with the company Luma, they're based in San Francisco. They just raised a bunch, but they're kind of the, I guess, leaders of that space at the moment. Anyways, it's like photogrammetry, but it's not creating a mesh. It's creating a, okay, it's different to a, do you know what nerfs are? Have you heard of that term? Nerf. Well, so that was the first one. The, the Neural. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Nerf gun. I know. Same spelling, but it stands for neural radiance fields. Okay. And basically the way it works is, so photogrammetry, yep, you take all these photos of an object or something. Traditional photogrammetry will then align those and then it will create a mesh from it and then try to put some texture on and you get like a mesh that you can then just like import into 3D software and it, it's a mesh. It, it knows what it is because that's exactly how it works. Nerfs are a bit different. It's instead kind of creating like a point cloud. That's the way I understand it. I've been told that's not correct as well, but it's basically a point cloud. It's like little points in space. And it kind of matches, it's where it thinks the object starts. Like if you imagine like this cup, right? My finger goes through it and then it like stops, right? Because it's got this cup. It tries to like put in, I think it's like a prediction value on like where it thinks the thing starts. So it goes like zero, 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 one, right? I think it starts here. So then it puts a point there and says, that's that thing. And then the color of those points, if it was just points that just we all gray and you would go like, can't see it. The way it works is depending on where you are looking at it, it will use the color information that was captured on that point. And then it takes another viewpoint and says, this is the color information. So that point now that was here and it was like a red color, now we've moved a little bit. Well, now it's a little bit orange, right? So that point has now changed. And the way, what makes it interesting is that it can predict different angles that weren't captured. And I'm, this is my understanding of it. I've tried so much to understand this, but it's, there's almost nobody also that is trying to put it in a form that people can grasp. They will just use terminology. That, anyway, but basically I think it's like a self-learning model. So if, let's say you took 200 photos around a car, right? It will read into it and try to guess like, okay, I'm going to use only 15 of these photos and I'm going to try to guess what does the car look like from this angle? And it will try to guess what that information would look like based on those 15 angles. And it will then compare what it thought it was going to look like with what it actually looks like because it has an angle, like a photo from that angle. And it will then correct its model. It will go, it was off on this kind of case, right? And it will do that all the way around it. And it will then be able to make good predictions of angles that it doesn't have as well. Like maybe it's slightly off in this way. So you basically end up with something that looks like a 3D model where you can like drag around and it looks very realistic because it's capturing the real light and information that was captured on the scene. And it's putting it into this point cloud, what you call the, the nerf. Then August, September of last year, somebody released a paper, which was like, okay, you all know nerfs. You all know how cool they are. Great. 3D GS. 3D Gaussian splattings, instead of taking those little points, which were apparently very hard to render like in a real-time frame rate or in any sort of normal computer, it was too computationally expensive. And instead it puts Gaussians, which is kind of like a gradient, that's the way I think of it, on that space. And it can stretch or shrink or whatever, those little points. And it looks the same as the Nerf, but it's now real-time. So you could now get realistic looking captures of real life that you can just view in a browser that looks incredible. Like the detail that's there because it's real, like from on scene, it's like, it's better than any video game and you can look at it on your phone. It's running on your phone, right? So people have, you know, you, I mean, if you just go to like Luma, Luma Lab, I don't know if they're called Luma Lab or Luma. I think they're just, anyway, Luma is what they're, 
program is called. But if you go to their site, you can see captures that other people have made. And yeah, it'd be like a forest or a statue or something for your life. And you can just like drag around and it's like a 360 degree like model or a capture of a space and you can run it on a phone, you can run it on anything. So that is a very novel way, a novel rendering technology. And what's interesting is Unreal Engine, I don't know how they've done it, but they've made it so that you can import that information into a game or a, a 3D scene and use that inside of the thing. Now, it doesn't look very good. Like it doesn't, <laughs> it's like, it's trying to guess lighting information because much like photogrammetry, what you got, like what you captured was using the lights. Like if it was a daytime scene, you've got hard light, right? And if you've got a statue of a guy standing there like that, well, now underneath his arm, it's going to be very dark. You're not going to have any information there at all. If you then put that into a game that's in an overcast scene or even a nighttime scene, well, now you've got a mesh that just looks horrible. Like it doesn't, it just looks fake because your eye will go like, why does it look so bright when everything is dark or whatever? So I think it's trying to guess different lighting setups based on the information that's there as well, which is also very challenging. Anyway, very, very new, very like unique. So there's that. I would also say another one, but it more applies to the artists that are authoring content is something called SDF, sign distance fields. Okay. So that is, so normally like in Blender, if you follow one of my tutorials, you make a donut, you start with a torus and you have this mesh that's made of points and then the points that you can make four of them and that's a face, that's a mesh, right? But a lot of, like it gets really challenging. If you want to make like a fire hydrant, it's a cylinder, right? But then it has another cylinder going out of it. Well, how do you join those points to make it so that the cylinder going out of it actually works. And like in your life, like it, it's a lot easier to understand. It's like a cylinder and then another cylinder. They should be able to just join, but they don't. It's really, it just doesn't work like that because it's a model. It needs to have the points to align to other points. And it's this really annoying process. So if you then apply that to like a handgun or a weapon in a game, and you've got this thing with like gun rails and little bits and soft bits and hand grips where you hold it, it just becomes almost like a Sudoku puzzle of like an extreme level where you have to imagine like how many points do I need here to align to this? And then there needs to be less points over here. So I have to, and it's this like juggling game. Well, SDF is much more about like how you would imagine it. Like I'll start with a cubish object for the handle and now I need a roundish object for the hand grip and it would just automatically kind of like merge them almost like it's made of clay like you're just kind of like working with clay and so the software that actually uses that i think there's two plasticity is a very new one that just came out and substance modeler adobe substance modeler and those are two there's got to be another one but i think there's yeah those are the two that come to mind that use this approach and other packages have been very slow to pick up on this or adapt to it, but those two are kind of leading the front, I'd say. Yeah. Fascinating. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of technical mumbo jumbo there, but yeah. Just to briefly close that loop. So like two more questions for you. One of them. So sure. I had this moment when I was looking through Polygon where I was just like, you know, looking at all these models and looking at all these textures and a lot of them are really realistic. And then I got to the cinnamon buns and they gave me a bit of a crisis, honestly. Like I was looking at these cinnamon buns. And I was like, those are real cinnamon buns. Those are just flat out real cinnamon buns. <laughs> so right. what I want to ask to you is like, are we at the point where we're just straight up photorealistic? Like we can just do it. It's a solved problem. And if not, what's left? Yeah, that's a very good question. It depends on the topic. So if you think back, like, can I ask how old are you? I'm 31. I actually had to thought of that for a moment. Yeah, I'm 31. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. So you, you know, you grew up with like, you know, the old school, like PlayStation 2 kind of games, that kind of thing. If you remember like some of those games, like the Grand Prix, right? Some of those things actually looks kind of realistic, right? And it's because you're far enough away from it. And it's a very kind of, it's an easy light setup. There's not a lot of challenges there. It's just like direct hard sunlight. There's not like complexity of shadows. And so it's very easy to do that. And if you look at like FIFA games today, like the same thing, they look very realistic. NBA, these sports games, certain things are very, very easy to do well. But there are certain areas that have always remained a challenge. One of them, humans, making realistic humans that can 
play in a movie alongside Robert De Niro and you can go like, that's a human being, not that's a horrifying CG character that should not be in this movie. People know about the term the uncanny valley. It's a real thing and it sucks. But yeah, your eye is just really able to tell minute flaws in a human face. You will not be able to spot those same flaws in a dog or an animal because you're not familiar enough with that animal to understand where it's wrong. So you could have like the best artist to create a human face and you could look at it and go, something's still not right, right? Whereas you could get a junior first year university student doing a 3D course and they could make a deer, which is all sorts of problems with it. And you'd go like, that's a great deer, right? So you're able to pick the flaws on things you understand and less able to on the things that you're less familiar with. But then there are also like other things which are computationally expensive, fluid being one of them. I just watched Godzilla Zero. Have you seen that one? I haven't seen it, but I have seen people talking about the VFX of Godzilla Zero. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. The VFX carried that movie hard. And actually, it makes sense because the director was a CG supervisor. Like, that's his background was VFX. So he really just like what makes the movie great is like, it looks like a $150 million movie on a $10 million budget. And it's like, how did they do that? Right. So that is, I don't know if that makes for a good viewing experience for the average person, but I found it entertaining. But the water in that was really good. It's like they had these scenes where Godzilla is like following this boat on the ocean and it's like the water and the spray. Yeah. So like the reason it's still so challenging to do is that water is made up of tiny, tiny, tiny little particles that when they crash into something, they get tiny enough, they become spray, right? And so this is spray. And if you had to simulate each of these tiny little points to create the appearance of spray, it's way too computationally expensive. So the best we can do is create like like fakery, right? So that when it gets to a certain, like as it simulates, these like large objects separate into smaller objects, which then once they separate into a small enough object, it switches to become a different object type, which is a volume to create that spray. And then you've got like, what is the size of the box in which this simulation is occurring? And it's like in that scene, it's like, I don't know, 200 by 200 meters or something, right? So that's a lot of water that's like interacting. It's really challenging. So the best software for it is Houdini. It's the industry standard software, but like it's always going to be a fakery and an approximation because the real world is so much more complex than what we can simulate. Another one I always think of every time I go for a walk in nature is nature. Nature is very complicated, right? Where the rock is and then the tree is, and then the tree had to kind of like go around the rock and then you've got plants, but the plants are actually behaving on like survivability. Like if the tree is too big, well, it's casting too much shadow. And so the only thing that could survive there would be like little mushrooms or other types of plants that can only live there. And where it's light, you've got like a, a bush or something like that. And then the leaves have coated everything, like the, the trees above, the leaves as they've fallen, and they've fallen into the crevices of the rock. And so you've got buildup there, and now it's darker, and there's like grunge, all that stuff you just don't see in any game, any movie, because it would just be like a waste of time because it would be so computationally expensive. No like <laughs> reasonable supervisor on a movie or in a game is going to be happy with an artist that tried to simulate all that. So instead, you just grab a rock from a, a site like Polygon or Megascans, you grab a tree from this thing and you put it there, and maybe you do a little bit of texturing where they kind of get near each other, but then you go like, call it a day. That's it, right? So there's still... So much more we could do for realism. I don't think we're anywhere near a peak because there's just infinite amounts more detail than we can reasonably compute right now. So that, that description of the forest reminded me of, I think it was a tweet I saw the other day where it was like, you know, you should learn to paint because it makes you see things in light and shadows that you didn't see before. And, you know, you mm. just described a bunch of things. I'm sure people walking through a forest, like, haven't necessarily aren't part of their perception. <laughs> yeah. Learning all this changed the way you saw the world. Do you, like, now look at things and think, like, oh, there's some good textures and that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's actually, like, a problem. Every time we go on holiday, 
I just, I'm not really there. I'm just like, <laughs> we'll go to the beach and I'm just like staring at the rocks. My wife's like, what are you, what are you thinking about? And I'm just like, thinking about how complex is that water? How could it, you know? <laughs> and I'm never really, never really there. Yeah. It's always noticing it. Uh, well, this has been awesome. I've definitely learned a whole bunch. My final question to you, as we come towards the end, are there any other Blender creators or uses of Blender that you've got your eye on and would recommend folks to check out? Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the stuff that I find interesting, it's really complex, but it's geometry nodes, which is a feature of Blender. It's about two years old, three years old, but it's basically using, yeah, like programming in a way, but in a visual, like you've, it's using nodes, right? So you use one node, which defines the rotation of an object and another node to, which creates a random value. And you put that and you connect it together. And now you've got a random rotation, right? So it uses that to create these really complex things that people have created. So if you just go onto Twitter and use hashtag B3D, you'll see everyone's Blender creations. That's the hashtag everyone uses. And then if you type in nodes or geometry nodes, you'll see some really wild stuff that people are creating of, I mean, yeah, just like the most complex, like a car going through a, like a mud puddle or like a rain effects or like, like a missile simulation. So the missile fires up and then it changes and it goes a different direction. It's like a homing thing and you can do really crazy things with it. That stuff is very, very fascinating personally. Yeah. In a lot of, I've seen Passive Star, I think is a guy who's been doing a lot of, a lot of, oh like, yeah. A lot of geometry. Yes. Twitter. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's a great shout out. Some really interesting things going on with geometry nodes. Awesome. Definitely. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been super great. What's new on your channel? What should people be checking out? Yeah, well, on the channel, not a lot. <laughs> I'm actually working on a Blender course, a paid course, as I mentioned. So that's something that I'm busy. I'm interviewing artists, just user interviews to find out what do they struggle with with Blender? What are you trying to learn? So that I can try to create a course which would help complete beginners to 3D master the fundamentals and the essentials in about six weeks. And it was a bit of a stretch. So I'm working on that course. That's a lot of time there. And then for Polygon, it's, I mean, a lot of initiatives in the works, but we're remastering the catalog at the moment to bring it up to new standards. But yeah, I don't know. Go to my YouTube channel, Blender Guru or Polygon.com. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us today. No worries. Thanks for having me.